Kiora, this program is brought to you by Wellington Access Radio. Wellington Access Radio, make your voice heard. Kiora Wellington, this is B Side Stories on Wellington Access Radio 106.1 FM, stories of the people who make Wellington tick. I'm Laura Kewen, and I'm not in the studio today. I'm doing this interview over Zoom. Uh, because we are in level two COVID-19 restrictions, so stay safe out there. Today on our show, we're talking dope, weed, green, Mary Jane. It's a conversation about legalizing cannabis ahead of this year's referendum. My guest, Abe Gray, is a botanist, a lifelong activist for drug reform in New Zealand, and uh, he is campaigning for uh, a big yes vote in this year's uh, cannabis legalization referendum. So, uh, hi, Abe. Welcome to B-Side Stories. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for coming on. So we're talking about cannabis, which is still illegal in New Zealand. So do, do you ever worry about talking about cannabis in public? <laughs> no, uh, that's kind of been my thing for the last 15, 20 years is... Um, not having any fear or shame of speaking about cannabis <laughs> in public. Despite the stigma in New Zealand, you know, funnily enough, I immigrated from Minnesota in 2002 uh, because I had read about New Zealand in a High Times magazine and how they had a Rastafarian member of parliament and were on the cusp of legalizing cannabis. And I thought, I'm going to leave this hellhole of George W. Bush's police state America and come to uh, you know this hippie utopia of uh, the green ganja, and uh, it didn't quite work out that way. Um, yeah, it it didn't get legalized, and despite the huge prevalence of cannabis and cannabis use in New Zealand, which was what the article I had read was reflecting, uh, there was a huge taboo and stigma around it, and I I just thought that that was silly. I mean, everybody privately was so enthusiastic i thought they should you know publicly be a bit more enthusiastic and um yeah i've i've been sticking my neck out about that ever since yeah men maybe you can give us a reminder or a history lesson what was happening in 2002 that gave some people the impression that we were close or on the cusp of of legalizing well, cannabis so in 1999 the 1999 96 was the first MMP election. The alliance um, brought in some MPs that <clears throat> had been previously uh, part of the Values Party, which was like a political movement in the 70s, but had never had parliamentary representation. That became the Green Party. The Green Party split away on their own for the 1999 election. So they had some sitting MPs because of the alliance, and they decided to go on their own. And actually a campaign was run against the Greens by the uh, exclusive Brethren Christian group, uh, putting leaflets in people's letterbox saying, you know, if you vote for the Greens, you're going to vote for these druggies that love cannabis. And that boosted <laughs> the vote for the Greens. Enough that <laughs> uh, it looked like they weren't going to get in, but then when the special votes were counted, uh, they did get in. And so the... The Greens kind of, yeah, rode 
rode into Parliament on their, you know, own steam on the basis of their association with cannabis and the popularity of uh, one of their celebrity uh, candidates at the time, Nandor Tansos, who had big long dreadlocks and rode around on a skateboard. And so uh, in the course of that term of government, 99 to 2002, the Greens had a confidence and supply arrangement or not, not a formal coalition, but some sort of loose arrangement with uh, Helen Clark's Labor Party. And, and I wasn't here then, but this is what I was reading about. And they had had a health select committee that <clears throat> reported into the harms of cannabis and the legal status. And they found that actually all the harms associated with cannabis actually arose due to prohibition and not due to cannabis itself. And so they recommended that cannabis be decriminalized. And so it was the, um, the optics of this, you know, the world's first practicing, meaning he still uses cannabis, Rastafarian sitting member of parliament, government commission showing, oh, it's actually prohibition causing the harm. And, uh, you know, everything going to plan, uh, you know, that type of parliamentary arrangement would be returned in 2002. And, you know, if the Greens and Labour uh, continued to build that relationship with each other, it was basically clear that the, you know, the recommendations of that select committee report would be carried out and cannabis would be decriminalized in short order. Um, so I was moving to New Zealand knowing that that was happening, but not really understanding how the parliamentary process worked here or what the electoral cycle was or anything. And so the same week that I arrived to study botany at the University of Otago um, was the week of the 2002 election. And in the 2002 election, Labour and the Greens did not build their relationship. Their relationship completely broke down and was destroyed uh, due to a book written by Nikki Hager, uh, coincidentally, uh, about genetically modified porn being illegally planted in trials and labor said hey shut up about it and the green party said we can't shut up about this and and that led to a breakdown in the relationship uh sailing up the middle in in the context of all of that came uh peter dunn and his centrist christian united future party and that was essentially due to uh uh doing very well on a televised debate where they had an audience feedback mechanism called the worm, which showed Peter Dunn's sort of political capital rising graphically on the screen every time he said the word common sense. Um, so that, so that brought him to 7% at the election, just slightly edging out the greens. And in the context of uh, labor and the greens hating on each other, Labor chose to go with him, and yeah. his only sort of um, requirement for a coalition, uh, you know, to supply the majority was no change to the legal status of cannabis. So um, that kind of showed you how much of a foregone conclusion it already was, because Peter Dunn used his, you know, one, what you know, what is the most important thing to you politically thing that he could get out of Labor to give them the majority to say, stop cannabis reform dead in its tracks. It was clearly yeah. had momentum and, uh, you know, was going to be completed, but he, he killed that in 2002, the same week I arrived. And I came to 
the local Green Party office uh, and was like, hey, I'm here to uh, celebrate legalizing cannabis. And uh, <laughs> they were not happy that, you know, it was everything was off the table, everything they had fought so hard for. It was a complete, you know, they basically decided they had to do a complete rebrand. And it yeah. was a, it was a big, um, yeah, it was a big change in the New Zealand political landscape. That, that heady, hippie utopia celebration that I had read about that had attracted me to New Zealand um, was all of a sudden sort of, you know, not trendy anymore and kind of out of the question. Yeah. 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 And then <clears throat> you, you, you've been on a, on a bit of a journey ever since, because it seems like you've kind of uh, just from doing some reading online, you've been forming groups and advocating for drug reform and doing all kinds of stuff f from the time you were in Ot Otago until, until today. So do you want to just walk us through your, your background of sort of activism around cannabis in New Zealand? Yeah, so I arrived in uh, New Zealand in late 2002 and uh, went to Dunedin to study botany at Otago. And, um, you know, I, I was excited to participate in this sort of, um, you know, New Zealand counterculture that was so vibrant that I had read about. And it was kind of, instead of, you know, being encouraged and celebrated, it was back to being suppressed. And, and the taboo had really strongly sort of come back. And I just thought, you know, why isn't anybody saying anything? Remember, you know, that the argument had been won on its merits, just because some Christian guy did better in the election doesn't mean that, you know, facts and evidence go out the window all of a sudden. And and so I just uh, tried to link up with the local normal chapter, the, you know, the legalization organization. It was mm -hmm. like a, a club on campus. And, um, you know, meet other people who are passionate about the cause and see what we could do. And the first year that I was there wasn't my idea, um, but, I, but I was there. And uh, on the national day of protest for legalization, our group marched into the Dunedin police station and we smoked cannabis inside the police station uh, as a protest and sort of daring the police to arrest us if they thought it was such a big offense. And of course they didn't. Uh, and then the next year we did that again with about a hundred people and there was a big picnic inside the police station and we kind of turned it into like a mini cannabis rave uh, and they didn't do anything. And so we thought that kind of proved that the police do have more important things to do. That was their own words. And um, we thought, well, we should do this more than once a year. And maybe we should leave the cops alone because they've been pretty good about it. And so <laughs> we started meeting every week, every Friday at 420 on the Otago University campus. And um, that just got bigger and bigger and bigger until the university kind of realized, oh, we should probably try to put a stop to this. But by then it was too late. And we just kind of stood up to them because they were really just security guards that had no enforcement authority. And they said, oh, well, we're going to call the cops. And we said, well, call them. We smoked weed inside the police station. They don't <laughs> care about that. I don't think they're going to come here. And, um, 
And of course they didn't. And, and we called their bluff and that was kind of captured by the student media and then the national media. And it went on the front page and onto like close up and the TV shows and stuff. And so um, we kind of got famous from being on the news. And that was like just around the time that um, YouTube was, was new and the internet, you know, blogging and, and user generated videos and all that stuff. We were kind of at the forefront of that. And so some of the first stuff you could really Google about Otago or about cannabis in New Zealand was about this fun mini festival every week at Otago. And it became kind of like a tourist attraction. And, um, you know, that was the fun part. I mean, all that time, all of the students participating in that were law students and, you know, science students and medical students and, you know, science communication students. And so we were, we were doing academics and proving that, you know, enthusiastic stoners can also be productive citizens and upstanding members of society. But because of our connection to science communication at Otago there, we had realized that we were trying all the different major forms of um, communication. We had done street theater, we had done pamphlets, documentaries, uh, public events, debates, we had a radio show, New Zealand's only cannabis themed radio show for 10 years uh, on the student radio station. And uh, we realized that we were just, you know, repackaging the same message in different modes of communication. And at that time, the sort of the hot new thing for the science communication students and a thing that we had never done was interactive museum exhibits um, was like all the rage in communication circles. So we thought, well, we should try this. Uh, and there already needed to kind of be an information kiosk for tourists because so many of them every week were trying to find this 420 smoke up that there needed to be like a frequently asked questions, you know, where is it? When is it? How do you get away with it? What's the history? What do I expect when I'm buying on the black market? All that kind of stuff that you'd want to know. And so mm -hmm. we turned that into an exhibit and we had all this memorabilia and you know, news clippings and posters from the actual history of that evolution and going further back because protesting about legalizing cannabis has been a thing for university students ever since cannabis existed, since it was illegal. And at Otago, you know, that's no different, uh, you know, including famous names like Tim Shadbolt. And there's a huge, historical archive in the student magazine, you know, in the archives of the student magazine and um, some some really cool like badges and other memorabilia that we managed to collect. So we put together this history of uh, cannabis activism at Otago and uh, inside the flat that we had, you know, subsequently rented for our group to try to be a little more professional and active. And we called it New Zealand's first cannabis museum. And that really stuck and um, went completely viral. And so my other job was also working at the university, teaching botany and tutoring biology, first year biology labs and, um, you know, upper level botany courses. So it's really like, um, you know, hands on leading people of a certain intelligence level through interactive stations and explaining kind of complex scientific topics. Plus I was the science communication junkie trying to copy everything they did with cannabis. And now we had this museum and, and it was really like a, a marriage of all of those 
things that I had developed my expertise in. I had always wanted to study cannabis. That's why I did botany and I kept a special interest, you know, in it while I was going through my studies and doing the teaching and yeah, the the interactivity of like lab tutoring really lends itself to um, museum exhibition as well. And so even though we were just having a laugh and, you know, exposing the history of our sort of smoke up that had become a viral tourist attraction, we realized then that the, the, the power of a museum as a mode of communication, as a tool, was unlike anything we had ever witnessed before because every other time we were talking about the same thing, we had received very little interest and a lot of mocking ridicule. But when it was packaged as a museum, it just had the authority of unassailable fact and sort of prestige and legitimacy. And so we thought, well, we, we really have to do keep doing it, what we want to do this way, because this is how it gets taken seriously. And so Neat. we took that expertise that I had, you know, of, of all these sort of skills dovetailing together and and started to make other exhibits and i should really acknowledge my co-founder of the museum uh julian crawford who actually lived in the flat where we started it because he and i together developed those early exhibits that we kind of got credibility for being real thoughtful communicators and like we realized we had this opportunity to use the tool but if we had abused it or done it wrong you know, we wouldn't have been able to use it again. But because we established a track record of taking the fun, quirky, exciting things about cannabis culture that are hidden and taboo and edited out of mainstream history and, and presenting them in a, in a thoughtful and creative and, and classy way, we kind of were given social license to keep doing it. And we ratcheted that up and up and up onto the main street of, you know, First Dunedin and then Christchurch and um, other major New Zealand cities. And so that was kind of how it evolved. But yeah, then we also did early exhibits about the history of cannabis and professional cricket and how to purchase cannabis over the dark web when uh, Silk Road and Bitcoin first came out. And, you know, Mm -hmm. we're always trying to stay topical, but also be funny and functional. Yeah. Wow. So, uh, as well as being an educator and like, uh, like a, um, kind of, a a, a media seeker, you, you, you've also, um, begun to dip your toes into politics and like that, that sort of level of engagement about, uh, making, making change to laws in New Zealand. So do, do you want to say something about why that is important to you? Yeah, well, politics, I mean, I've always been involved in politics, like, in part of the reason why I immigrated to New Zealand is because I, you know, what superficially I understood about the MMP parliamentary system was that, you know, and the population size of New Zealand was that one person could actually have an influence, you know, and, and could see that through to a national level, like, pretty demonstrably you know, as a disillusioned 18 year old in Minnesota, having cast my first vote in the Bush v. Gore hanging Chad election determined by the Supreme Court, ultimately, it was kind of like, well, you know, and then we had the Patriot Act. And it's like, you're not going to be making a difference here. That's for sure. Um, 
and and you know i mean i probably could have and should have you know stayed and helped there but uh it seemed like it would be easier to make a difference in <laughs> and you know to be honest i didn't think i was going to have to make a difference i thought the difference had been made already um but that was a bit naive um yeah and so when i got here realizing that it wasn't happening i just thought well how can we get this back on the agenda as soon as possible i mean at first i thought it would just be a blip i thought surely at the 2005 election somebody's going to come in campaigning on this and say hey you know we we messed up like obviously we should have done this let's let's do it the evidence hasn't changed or it's only strengthened in our favor um but that didn't happen. Uh, unfortunately, the Greens went for a bit of a rebrand. They decided that cannabis was losing them votes more than gaining them. And even then in 99, it was a, it was a hard debate within the party and they didn't really believe it. They didn't want to campaign on Nandor and cannabis. It was the Brethren who was trying to like campaign against them using that right. and it worked in their favor. So if it had been up to the Greens, they wouldn't have even gotten in on 99 because they wouldn't have had much exposure of that aspect of their party. Then in 2002, they felt burned by it, you know, because it was used as a thing to beat them around the head when really it was all about them falling out with labor over GE. And yeah. then, of course, you know, the other minor New Zealand parties just weren't really touching it with a barge pole, like ACT, you know, philosophically should have been all over it. Um, and coming from the states, you know, the libertarian parties are are just all about it. Um, and I would have thought they would have made more of that. But it was obvious that their relationship with the National Party and their reliance on sort of the Epsom electorate meant they had different values, you know, than what <laughs> was written in their manifesto, mm -hmm. I guess, for yeah, electoral yeah. reasons. Um, so initially, I got involved with the Aotearoa Legalized Cannabis Party um, because essentially it was like, well, MMP is here. Like we almost got it with a minor party with the Greens. You know, theoretically, if we could make this a big enough issue, we could get the, you know, we could get the votes and and just like Peter Dunn used the votes to to not do cannabis, someone, anyone could use the votes to explicitly do cannabis reform. Um, so, yeah, I mean, the Legalized Cannabis Party was very far from 5%, but they do get funding, you know, for communication during the electoral cycle, and they get taken seriously, having been a party that's been around through multiple cycles. They get listened to and, you know, I got... I want to say taken seriously, but not taken that seriously, unfortunately. But it, it was it was more of an opportunity to talk about it than nobody saying anything. Um, so, yeah, so I got involved with them. And, uh, you know, for a while we were just young guys trying to help them out, me and my colleague Julian. And then we thought, well, the feedback that we're getting is this needs to be done to a slightly more professional standard. If we're going to get any further than, you know, half a percent or one percent. And so uh, Julian and I actually attempted to kind of make over the party and professionalize it. And that was part of what the founding of the museum was, because we got that flat to kind of have him 
permanently situated doing press releases and doing website work. And we, we kind of rebranded the party from there and made that the official party headquarters. And he became the party leader. And so for a moment there, we were trying to, you know, say if it was run by serious people, would it be taken more seriously? I mean, the answer seemed to be a resounding no. Hey, I'm just going to have to pause for a second there because my daughter's calling out to me. Okay. Sorry about that, three-year-old. No um, worries. Yeah, so <laughs> the the point I was making was, um, you know, we, we tried to do a makeover of the Legalized Cannabis Party in the hopes that it would be taken more seriously. Uh, and unfortunately, that didn't do it. <laughs> and, you know, there was various circumstances, I guess you could say, that led to that being the case. The first election that we had a more professionalized, streamlined cannabis party was the 2014 election. And we really thought that we were going to make some, some big waves in that election, and it was a wide open field. And then out of nowhere came Kim.com and the internet party. And everyone believed that they were going to take cannabis reform as a central plank of their campaign policy. And internally, they, that you know, had been widely discussed. And it always came to the top of the list in terms of canvassing their constituency and using technology to find out what voters wanted. And so uh, we were kind of involved with discussing with them of you know, how we could support their campaign or be involved with that. If, in fact, they were going to go for cannabis reform because we didn't want to split the vote. Um, but it turned out that they, you know, were working with or, or also canvassing the potential of merging with the Tony Harawira's MANA party, which they ultimately did. Um, and we just knew from our electoral history of New Zealand that Tony Harawira hates cannabis and wouldn't go anywhere near it, like in terms of the optics. And so we just thought, well, this is going to be a missed opportunity. And we knew that they were never really going to get their cannabis campaign off the ground. But Kim.com was convinced. And he said, you know, if anybody can convince Hone, it'll be me. And he was working on him right up to it. And I guess we all saw kind of publicly the email fallout of, you know, he didn't <laughs> convince Hone in the end. Um, and so that whole campaign was dominated by these other issues. And what we had hoped would be, you know, the, the, the cannabis issue election, um, when we had put all this effort into, uh, didn't end up being that. It was all about dirty politics and, mm -hmm. you know, Kim.com's sort of uh, collections of memorabilia or whatever. Uh, yeah. But what a weird election year that was. You're just reminding me of this thing. The <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's funny. Cause, cause <laughs> it's funny I, to I, think about. My most of my major memories, you know, flurries of activity are around the election because that's when you have a chance to make a real difference. Like, um, you know, if if cannabis had become an election issue, and and you know was was clearly sort of voted on in the general election, even not not in a referendum, but if it had been clearly an issue and votes were delivered to people who campaigned positively on it, um, that would have the potential to get movement really quickly. And 
you know, unfortunately that was never happening. And so in the background to all of this, like when it became clear essentially that ALCP was never going to get enough to get in, we also wanted to uh, work on the idea of a referendum because I don't know if you remember, I think it was also the 2014 election or maybe it was the 2011, there was the state asset sales referendum. Mm, and so yeah. we, we knew that if we got the machinery of like left-wing parties involved, that it would be possible to stand up a citizens initiated referendum. Yeah. And we just thought that a citizens initiated referendum, um, even though it was essentially legally toothless, it would be that kind of good message. It would get the public debate going and turn it into an election issue, despite everyone's, you know, uh, better efforts to have it not be an issue. And so actually what we thought we would do is strategically time it so that when we submitted the signatures, like when we got the question approved and then collected the signatures and submitted the final signatures would be timed in such a way that the, the time that the referendum would legally be required to be held would be at the same time as the election so that they would lump them together. So we had always hoped, let's try to get a citizens initiated referendum at the same time as the election, even though they don't, you know, you can't really like ask for that. We, our reasoning was if, if the legal, if the legally required date to hold the re referendum was close enough to the election, the electoral commission would recognize that they should lump them together and save costs and stuff. Mm -hmm, and so mm -hmm. we were trying, you know, how can we rig up the current situation that we have, um, you know, like back 10 years ago. And it just seemed too hard. Like basically, unless Labor and the Greens got in behind with the idea that, okay, if we can get this referendum at the same time as the general election, then youth and left-wing turnout will increase and that will help us. And this has been shown to be the case in the mm. U.S. And in U.S. states, like Democrats, state-level Democrats routinely push for cannabis reform referenda questions in states that have those facilities at the same time as the general election because it helps drive turnout. And so we thought we could make this argument and we weren't having much success, but then all of a sudden Helen Kelly came on the scene and announced that she was sick and she was a medical cannabis user. And that opened amazing doors politically because she basically said, oh, you know, why take all this trouble for a citizens initiated referendum? You know, we, she started meeting with people who were interested in law reform and we told her where we were up to. And, and she said, Oh, well, you know, maybe we could just get uh, one of the, one of my mates in labor to put it in as a private member's bill. And so it turned out that Damien O'Connor was willing to do that for her. And that was something that we were really interested in because we had, sort of researched referenda. And we knew that if it was a parliamentary created referendum instead of a citizens initiated referendum, that then it could be legally binding. Like we had also just recently seen at that time with the flag referendum. So we worked with Helen Kelly, uh, who then went to Damien O'Connor's office and they actually drafted a parliamentary created binding referendum to be held at the general election 
that had two questions, one about medical cannabis and one about recreational cannabis. Now, remember, this was before there had even been any movement on medical cannabis, still in John Key's government here. And so that bill was actually fully drafted and ready to go into the biscuit tin. And the internal health committee of labor sort of vetoed it and said, oh, no, we don't want to appear to cannabisy and um, that was Annette King and David Clark. And so that that just got thrown in the rubbish bin instead of the biscuit tin. Mm. And Helen Kelly subsequently died. Um, but it was interesting because it was, you know, labor had had the argument made to them about the benefits to them of a referendum happening. And this was, you know, still when Andrew Little was the leader and it looked like they didn't have a hope and hell, they needed something to make themselves exciting. Now, ultimately, they went a different route. Um, but what that means is when the, you know, the current referendum was proposed to them, that they already had kind of a familiarity with why it could be good and an appetite for it. And so, um, you know, and basically, we had always asked Winston Peters whenever he would come on campus, oh, what do you think about cannabis? And to try to dodge the question, he would always say, oh, well, if, the, you know, if a majority voted in a referendum, I would support it. Because that's what he says about everything he doesn't want to give a straight answer to. And so the Greens had seen him say that enough that basically they knew that if they wanted to do an electoral ask that was cannabis reform related, it would have to be in the form of a referendum. And labor already knew that a referendum at the election could potentially benefit them. And so that was kind of the context of the current referendum that we got. And I guess to, to bring that story full circle, I left off at the 2014 election and then in the interregnum when we're working with Helen Kelly, but come the 2017 election, you know, labor's still a hopeless shambles in the early days. They decided not to go with this referendum, so it wasn't going to get pulled out in time or voted on. Um, the Greens were still totally not publicly aligning with cannabis. It was more about jobs workers' kids. If they were ever asked about cannabis, they'd just pivot to one of their main planks and say, oh, but we'd much rather talk about this. And along came a party founded by Gareth Morgan that was supposedly all about evidence-based policy. And of course, as a scientist myself and a science communicator, I, already, I always knew that, you know, should there be an evidence-based debate about cannabis and cannabis law reform that we would win. Uh, so I'm happy to have that debate. In fact, that debate was what I was trying to trick people into having, you know, for <laughs> over a decade. And um, they're, uh, you know, so they announced their cannabis policy ultimately. And, you know, again, this was after the 2014 election. People are like, oh, people project all this promise and hope onto a new left-wing party that's a blank slate, and then they don't deliver. And so cannabis as the third rail of New Zealand politics, I always knew was a risk. And I wanted to see the Opportunities Party actually deliver on a cannabis policy before I just projected onto them of being totally awesome. Um, and they ultimately did that. They delivered, they put out a cannabis policy that like hit the nail on the head that was 100% uh, 
public health best practice integrated, you know, not shaming the users really in any way, you know, those who are using responsibly. And so immediately I kind of knew like, well, you know, it was obvious that they had more of a chance than legalized cannabis party. Ultimately that 5 million only bought them another percent or two, but <laughs> we'll, we'll talk about that another time. <laughs> um, but, uh, but yeah, as soon as they released their cannabis policy, I just thought, you know, I ha if I'm serious, I have to go with these guys because the legalized cannabis party, you know, despite our best efforts, their actual policy still only consisted of a two word sentence, which was legalized cannabis. <laughs> it wasn't like a detailed <laughs> policy as such in terms of legislation and how it works with all the other legislation that's already on the books. But uh, so once I saw Top had that, I jumped ship to them and that yeah. got a bit of media and it managed to make cannabis and having a cannabis policy kind of like something that was worth talking about in the election. And it gave the Greens a little bit of a run for their money. And you could see, like the Greens and Top squabbled about a lot of different stuff, but you could see that they saw Top basically scooping up a big section of the electorate that they thought were their default voters without having to do anything for it, really. And they thought, well, we're not like, that's not happening. And they immediately started talking about cannabis, you know, whereas literally days before they were being asked directly and they were like pivoting. Then they started going on the offensive and talking about it a bit more. And then the feedback that they got from their own constituency was massive. And there was like all their supporters were like, oh, we were waiting for you guys to talk about this. And all the new young people saying, yeah, this is awesome. Why did you never talk about this before? And, and so this whole, you know, inner conservatism of their own members that they thought they were catering to was actually nothing or something that was like a decade old that they had not updated and they needed to. And, and they saw that and they got more and more traction. They started talking about it more. And on the very last day before the election, the last day that you could legally advertise, they bought a big digital billboard in Auckland Central that said, yes, we cannabis. And Julianne Genter shared a picture of herself, you know, given the double thumbs up in front of it. And it was like this sort of snowball effect of tsunami of positive feedback of them going on the offensive again, just really crescendoed right at that moment of election day. And, and it helped them with votes. And it, it took votes away from top. Well, that top was originally trying to take away from them, but mm. it forced them to kind of work for it in that space. And that was what, you know, people like me had been wanting to see since I had first immigrated here in the first place. And that was all I was ever actually wanting to see was someone else doing it, you know, and it took all of that effort over all those years. And, you know, it wasn't just me, but ultimately they came back to it. But, um, you know, I, it's, I don't think it's too far fetched to believe or to realize that that crescendo of that sort of forcing the greens back to cannabis, which I hope my, you know, activism and, you know, uh, joining top and speaking out on it for them played some small role in ultimately not only drove them back to cannabis, but to a place in that crucial election negotiation period where they thought, this is something we can get that we can lock in these gains and stamp our brand on political achievement. And they knew that what that would look like in that 
calculus with New Zealand First was a referendum, the referendum we're all about to vote in. Yeah. And so here, so here we are. So the green, so that last election, cannabis suddenly came up as an issue. The Greens uh, put forward a member's uh, bill that has become now a, a referendum about legalizing cannabis. So let's get into the nitty gritty of what that referendum is all about. Like, in general, for people who don't know, what is it that we're voting on around cannabis in, in October? Well, it's the Cannabis Legalization and Control Bill. So it's, it's regulating cannabis. It's acknowledging that responsible adults will use cannabis and have a right to do that under certain highly regulated, probably too highly, in my opinion, regulated circumstances. Um, so that's a win. Like adult cannabis use is no longer bad or illegal or, you know, default evil. Um, but what that means is now it comes with a lot of restrictions. And the restrictions in this case are, you know, much more stringent than the restrictions that we're used to for, say, tobacco or alcohol. So think of those type of restrictions, labeling, outlet density, hours, display caveats, you know, no sponsorship, that type of stuff, but on steroids, essentially. Um, so for people who don't like cannabis, I think it's important to emphasize the elements of control in the bill. And uh, for people who do like cannabis, emphasize the elements of legalization in the bill. Yeah, yeah. And uh, one question that people might raise is, uh, like, wh why bother legalizing cannabis? Like, what, what is the problem that legal weed is trying to solve? Well, I mean, prohibition is what creates the harm that we associate with cannabis. Like, alienation or demotivation or withdrawal from, you know, society and school is because of prohibition. It's because of the stigma surrounding cannabis. You know, people who have cannabis habits who are, you know, nurtured and supported um, are just a normal person and can achieve as much as anybody else. But when that's dwelled on and sort of used against them, then obviously that's going to drive a vicious cycle of alienation. Um, criminalization, I mean, destroys opportunity for professional experience, travel. It's been applied in a racist manner, you know, everywhere, but here in Aotearoa, definitely. Um, so the status quo isn't helping or working. It's just, um, you know, it's just something we're used to. And it's something we, sort of blindly copied from America that they only did out of sort of racism and vindictiveness against counterculture. So, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of, there was no good reason ever to do it. So that's a great reason to stop doing it. Right. Um, you hear a lot of stuff from people who are against uh, cannabis about how it's really bad for especially young people. It's bad for when your brain's developing. It's like, it's bad for people with depression. Do you want to address some of those, like uh, some of those problems that people raise with uh, like, sure. who should I mean, be cannabis is cannabis does cause harm to some people when used inappropriately. Um, and so those people, 
shouldn't use it or shouldn't use it inappropriately. That's for sure. But that's no reason criminalizing those people, first of all, is not going to help them further, you know, and criminalizing the whole of society just because of their potential harm is a huge overreaction that has second and third order effects that are more harmful than what they're designed to actually prevent. So a critical analysis, you know, would say this is unsustainable, but when it comes to, you know, quarterly budgets of, you know, police and stuff like that, then it can look like, oh, we're winning, depending on how you present the data. There's like, there's this little like um, contradiction in society that I'm noticing, which is like, there's a drive to get rid of tobacco, cigarettes, like this uh, drive to eradicate smoking uh, on the one hand, and then the movement to legalize cannabis on the other hand. Do you see those kind of butting heads or like, do you think they contradict each other? Like people are trying to reduce the harm from cigarettes and like all of the health impacts of that. But then on the other hand, we're also saying that people should have access to smoking spliffs. Well, that's brought up a lot, but what that, that what that represents is a misunderstanding of public health legislation essentially what what it really is is a complete harmonious dovetailing of public health response to tobacco and cannabis smoke free 2025 is going to treat tobacco like we're going to treat cannabis in this bill you know so when we say smoke free 2025 we don't mean militarized police going and enforcing tobacco prohibition and throwing people in jail and kicking down their doors and searching for tobacco. That's not what Smoke Free 2025 means. And I think that's what people who say, oh, but we're trying to go smoke free. That's what that insinuates is like, oh, well, if we're trying to go smoke free, then we should be kicking down everyone's doors and, you know, taking their children away and locking them up if we suspect they're using tobacco. But no one really thinks that if they think about it, that would be ludicrous. That would just be the the hugest wasteful overreaction in life. And so what Smoke Free 2025 actually means is that it can't be visibly for sale commercially. It means that if it's going to be sold at all, it has to be on specialist premises out of sight, like not in supermarkets and dairies, but just specially licensed tobacconists that, you know, have extra controls and extra education about the dangers and harm warnings and stuff and not having it be permitted in public places. But a person growing their own tobacco, smoking it privately or going to a licensed premises to buy it or a private club, um, that's all smoke-free 2025. So if that's what making New Zealand, you know, smoke-free looks like, let's make New Zealand cannabis-free. Uh, or maybe it should just be free <laughs> cannabis for everyone. But yeah, so the restrictions in the in the referendum are very similar to the most severe restrictions that have even been imagined for tobacco. They said, what's the most severe restrictions we could imagine for tobacco? Okay, we'll do that for cannabis. Right. They're still not actually going to do that for tobacco. And we all know that smoke-free 2025 being five years away is not actually going to be happening. But, um, you know, ultimately, we 
you know, logic would dictate that we'd see similar restrictions for alcohol, tobacco, and cannabis. And they'd be quite, you know, strong restrictions if we're trying to make up for the harm of alcohol. You know, in reality, they should be scaled according to harm. And we all kind of know that that would be very favorable to cannabis and not so favorable to alcohol. But, you know, let's just for everybody's comfort's sake, say we're going to treat them equally eventually. We might find that the restrictions that we're all sort of, you know, especially the anti-cannabis people are demanding to see in this bill to be comfortable with it. Are those the restrictions that they would ultimately want to abide by for their preferred recreational intoxicant of choice? And if the answer is no, then you shouldn't be being so harsh on cannabis. And I think we'll find that, you know, this bill will pass, it'll be implemented, and ultimately will move the restrictions around tobacco and alcohol sale and consumption closer to this bill, and we'll probably ease back a little bit on the restrictions of cannabis until they all are at a similar level. Yeah. So um, you were starting to get into describing like what it might be like when New Zealand has um, legal uh, recreational cannabis, but can you go a little further in describing what will it look like if this this referendum passes? Like what can we expect in the future? Well, the bill in its current form um, just basically says that it can only be sold or consumed at specialist premises and they can't have any outside signage and they can't have any branding or promotions or so anything that communicates enthusiasm about cannabis or cannabis culture will essentially be banned because they don't want to increase use and they don't want youth to use. So they don't want to glamorize it at all. So we'll be allowed to use it and we'll be allowed to have our own premise and we'll be allowed to buy it, but it'll just be a plain text sheet of some names of different products in a storefront with no signage kind of hidden away, away from schools and stuff. And there'll be no glamor to it. And there won't be any cool events or promotions or anything of that because that's all explicitly prohibited. Um, And so in fact, the only place that's exempt from communicating about modes of cannabis use or cannabis culture without falling foul of these new regulations in the bill is in fact museum exhibits. Uh, So it'll only be at specialized cannabis museums that you'll be able to celebrate cannabis culture. So uh, (laughs) that's a funny way of describing it. We're dismayed and also excited at the opportunities. That's right. You're in the perfect position to like (laughs) be the starting point. It's important to note that, you know, the bill's not binding. So it all depends on the makeup of the next parliament. And then the bill, you know, if there's a yes vote, then the bill will have to go through the normal first, second, third reading, select committees and all of that process. So it'll be modified significantly, you know, based on who's in the parliament, what the percentage of the yes vote is, who's on the actual select committee, and then what is the the strength of submissions, you know, to the select committee from the various camps of more or less restriction. Yep. So people who are worried about a particular aspect of the bill, they'll have a chance to get involved in public consultation and stuff like that. And that's what I say to the antis. Like, if you have a particular problem with the bill, you should vote yes, because that's the only way it's going to get to select committee. And you'll have a chance of 
playing your media Wurlitzer to get your little specific special interest caveat added to the bill, you know, like, because otherwise it's just a free for all of what we have now with prohibition and the way that the police are kind of de facto decriminalizing, at least for white middle class people means that the industry and the culture is just going to grow and grow and the popular, you know, the glamorization is just going to grow. So if you, you know, the status quo isn't working. Nobody likes the status quo. If you hate cannabis, it's super popular. And so it's, you can't like that. And if you love cannabis, you've got this ax hanging over your head of the law. So there's got to be a better way. So let's vote yes all together. And then we can argue with each other again at the select committee and lobby our MPs and all that good stuff. Yeah. And of course, when we think about how how it will work in the future, there's plenty of examples from overseas. Like, what do you look to as an example of well, that's like, the thing the sky where it's hasn't working? Fallen in. The sky hasn't fallen in in all these places. If you look, you know, California's had legal weed to anybody who wants to tick a box for 25 years, you know, and that's the economy that both right-wing and left-wing New Zealand actually models itself after, if you look at it. So, you know, what's the difference between New Zealand and Silicon Valley or uh, New Zealand and Hollywood? You know, we're, we're aspiring to be those places. There's just one difference. Hmm, I can't put my finger on it. Oh, yeah, it's legal weed in stores. Um, and, you know, Colorado is held up to be like this horror show that like all of the aunties talking points are based on Colorado. And actually they're based on the first six months of data in Colorado, you know, not the the next 10 years where they recognized the data and tweaked the legal regime and, you know, uh, added and took added regulations that made sense and took away ones that weren't working. And, you know, it's like, Colorado is fine. Colorado's doing great. You know, they're sucking you know, talented professionals from every state around them. They've got huge infrastructure build outs happening. They've got so much money for hospitals and schools. They've had to give tax rebates back to every citizen. So, you know, even the places that are supposedly over commercialized, you can't really tell the difference other than prosperity everywhere you look. So um, I, I personally don't know what the big anxiety is about it's all overblown it's all political you know new zealand doesn't have the same division that we that we have in the u.s so like the divide and conquer culture war issues that pit neighbor against neighbor they don't really cut through here like they do in america like homosexuality guns minority, you know, race, all of that stuff, because we all know each other. There's only two degrees of separation. So you can't gin up these angry mobs against each other because we're all kind of neighbors. And so my belief and what I've observed since I moved here under those <laughs> false pretenses of, you know, <laughs> cannabis liberation taking place is that because those culture war issues can't gain traction, one culture war issue that has managed to gain traction is cannabis and beating up on stoners and the taboo around cannabis. So, but cannabis, cannabis, cannabis over and over again, election after election is used as like this sort of media beat up to try to get 
grandparents and grandchildren and neighbors suspicious of each other. And because that's been done over and over again in the absence of anything else, that's why we've got this taboo in New Zealand that's wound so tightly that even though it's not, you know, like everybody <laughs> uses it secretly, it's this public image that we've built up for decades now of like, thou shalt not. We've got to unwind it. Hmm. And like, you seem pretty optimistic about the referendum. Like, do, do you think there's a chance that, that do you think we're secretly conservative and we might mess it up? <laughs> no, I think we're secretly liberal. I actually think because based on what I've seen as an activist for 20 years and running the museum, tons of people are secretly so supportive, but the minute that anyone else is looking, they're just like, I don't know that guy. And so I think even when they're being rung by the pollsters, they're saying, no, fuck no, I hate cannabis. But really, they're like smoking <laughs> it, you know? Or they're like so paranoid. Like, um, oh, I don't want anybody to know that I smoke cannabis, so I'm going to tell the pollsters I hate it. And I think, I think that's where some of the numbers are coming from. But also, it's important to note that the media we've seen about polling surrounding the referendum, and there's been a couple of uh, tracking polls and stuff, it's, it's focused on it being 50-50, but that's only of the decideds. And undecideds have always been 15 or 20% of that equation. So it's 50-50, but there's 20% who are still waiting to make their mind up on the evidence. And as we said before, the evidence is heavily in our favor because it's the truth and we are actually correct. Uh, there is a right and wrong answer in this case. So um, that's why I was always quietly bullish. You know, there's 30% hard no's. You're never going to change them no matter how hard you try, like it's not even worth it. But those undecideds, they're just waiting to see the evidence and not from me because I love cannabis for myself, but from the prime minister's chief science advisor and you know the longitudinal study of Otago and all of that stuff where they're saying, well, yeah, yeah, we hate hippies and cannabis users should be ashamed of themselves, but it's actually prohibition that is harmful and, you know, prohibition isn't helping. So it's, you know, it's somewhat unsatisfying to me as a campaigner for cannabis equality that we're still being given that pariah status, but at least they don't want to, you know, club us and beat us anymore. So it's, it's a step. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay. So for like a final question to wrap up, like for those people who are maybe sitting in the undecided camp where they they're not sure what the evidence says or they want to be, they want to read for themselves. Like where would you point them to, to learn more so that they can get their head around what, what, uh, what the impacts of legalizing cannabis might be and like how they can decide about how they want to vote. Yeah. Well, so cannabis has harms, but legalization is not going to increase those harms. If anything, it's going to allow for regulations that can actively reduce those harms and regulations that can be responsive to harms as they arise and actually data to be even collected on those harms, which we don't do now. And cannabis use won't increase because of legalization. Um, so if you don't like cannabis and you're concerned about cannabis harms, legalization won't increase cannabis use or cannabis harm. It will just circle it with regulation that can control it more easily. And so, 
if you want to, um, and, and, you know, if you think I'm, I'm crazy because I consume so much cannabis and it's terrible and I'm setting a horrible example, I'm going to be really disappointed because my, you know, the, the biggest excesses of my cannabis use won't be allowed legally. So I'm going to have to, you know, adapt or remain a criminal. Um, so <laughs> I guess, you know, if, if they're just hoping to see a look of disappointment on a hippie's face, uh, I'm available to give them that as well. <laughs> but the, the best resource is probably the prime minister's chief science advisor comparison. And that's totally neutral, not telling anyone how to vote. Uh, and also like the um, uh, Dunedin and Christchurch longitudinal multidisciplinary studies that followed the children since they were born, uh, Otago University, they've put out some good, uh, a good website about the referendum as well, because of course they've seen um, the effects of cannabis use on their cohorts and they've published about that and some of it is not great news. Um, but all of the bad news about cannabis coming out of them is people who use it too early or who abuse it. And for people who use it responsibly in moderation, you know, once they're adults, there's actually no demonstrable harm at all. So that's the really important takeaway. You know, we focus on cannabis is harmful for this person and that person and, you know, all these in these certain instances are used in certain ways. But all of the other times, like 99% that we're not talking about, right, you know, that that's not harmful. So, um, you know, the harms of cannabis exist, but it's a very small minority of the amount of cannabis consumed that is actually leading to harm. Nice. Uh, thanks, Abe, uh, for giving us um, a history lesson uh, of the movement and also uh, to legalize cannabis and also um, giving us some things to think about, resources to go look at to vote in the referendum. Yeah. Hey, thanks for having me. And I hope everybody does, you know, look at some evidence if they feel like they need to, because people should vote in the referendum. Of course, you know, if you if you were going to vote no, you could probably abstain, too. <laughs> uh, cool. Thanks, Abe. Okay. Cheers. That program was brought to you by Wellington Access Radio. Get your voice heard. Thanks, New Zealand On Air, for funding the Access Internet Radio Project.